Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition, on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're going to look at the defense budget. How much do we spend on defense? Uh, What do we spend it on? What are the trends? And what's the effect of new spending on the war in Ukraine? We'll get into all of that and more with our guest this week, Dr. Gordon Adams. He's a former associate director for national security and international affairs at the Office of Management and Budget uh, during the Clinton administration. Tori Gorman joins the conversation. Well, our guest this week is a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute, Professor Emeritus of International Relations, at American University's School of International Service and a distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center. He also writes his own substack uh, called The Sheath Sword. He was the founder and director of the Defense Budget Project in Washington. That's the predecessor to uh, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He received a PhD from Columbia University in 1970 and is the author of The Iron Triangle, The Politics of Defense Contracting. Dr. Adams and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. We talk about uh, the budget uh, all the time on this program, and I did want to focus on the defense budget. So, uh, Gordon, you, uh, you know, had several years at uh, at OMB uh, looking specifically at uh, defense and intelligence Numbers. So could, could you give us a, just an overview of what we spend on defense and, and, you know, basically where the money goes? Defense is, you know, one of those big categories of budget, and it's really hard for people to get their arms around how much we spend on defense. Uh, I mean, I'm going to work here n- number wise from what the uh, Biden administration sent up to the Congress for fiscal 24 just for the sake of running a number. And the number for the Department of Defense is $842 billion. Um, When I was at OMB in the mid-90s, and this is in real year dollars, the the numbers were around $250 billion. So you can see in the long span of history where this this (laughs) has gone, it's just exponentially gone up. Uh, And as far as I know, there's only two reasons why defense budgets go down, right? Uh, One is because we end a war. Hello, we don't need so many troops. We don't need so much equipment. We can uh, train less. We deploy less. There's a whole bunch of costs we don't have to spend, right? And two, the kind of work that the Concord Coalition and other people do is because there's constraints on the federal budget. In other words, outside of defense, somebody says, hey, we got to do something about federal spending, you know, as we did with Graham Redmond Hollings in the mid 80s or the Budget Enforcement Act in 1990 or the Budget Control Act in 2011. All of those were ways of saying, hey, we think we're spending too much. We need to be able to contain that spending. And when you cut that political deal, you can only do it 
by including both defense and domestic spending in the mix. Because otherwise, if you don't, if you, if it's all domestic spending, Democrats aren't going to play. If it's all defense, Republicans aren't going to play. Generally speaking, right? So uh, you know, defense. How much that is is always a difficult question to answer. Um, Eight hundred forty-two billion dollars is a lot. It's about fifty-five percent of all of the discretionary spending in the federal budget, and it's over half of all of the discretionary spending we do in the federal government. And it's been kind of there for a very long time. You know, many, many years now, uh, people like to say, well, you know, defense, it rises and it falls, you know, uh, no, basically it falls only when you got budget constraints or you got this, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, end of a war, right? But basically when it goes down, it's like a step level function. It goes down, but not quite to where it used to be. So it sets a new floor. Next time you go, get into combat, it goes up, and then it comes down, but not quite the same as where it was before. And then it goes up and comes. So over time, defense budgets have grown, right? So $842 billion is, needless to say, uh, a lot of money. Uh, that's not all. Uh, in fact, uh, my friend Wynn Wheeler, who used to be on the Senate Budget Committee staff, uh, has, does, has done his usual annual wonderful calculation of how much we actually spend on the things that we could call national security. And he gets up to, to, to $1.5 trillion, not $842 billion. Now we're in complete la-la land because that's a number nobody understands except maybe Elon Musk. <laughs> you know, I, I can't get my arms around, but I can tell you why he says that. There's, there's the 840 billion dollars at the defense department but all our nuclear weapons are studied and produced and over in the department of energy and that's another 30 plus billion dollars a year right ah and then there's things like subsidies to the coast guard and the strategic stockpile and things like that kind and they're all grouped for the congressional purposes in something called national defense as opposed to the department of defense and that number is 886 billion dollars all right. And then you take other things that we spend in the federal government um, that are defense type activities or national security activities like the Veterans Administration. Right. Which, you know, is 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 another um, VA is like another three hundred and twenty billion dollars. Uh, on top of that, nearly nine hundred billion we just talked about. We got the Department of Homeland Security. What is their job if not to make us secure? Right. Uh, you know, that's another hundred billion dollars in the mix. Uh, we've got all the stuff the State Department and Foreign Assistance does, which arguably contributes to our security. Right. It's there. Right. And that's another 50 billion dollars. So when you add it all up and then the top to put the cherry on top of the cake, uh, Wynn likes to say, and and some proportion of the uh, federal uh, deficit every year is the responsibility of defense. We can come back to that and talk about what that means. But what he's saying is he attributes another $150 billion worth of interest on the debt to the requirements of defense and the discretionary budget. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the end of his calculation, it's $1.5 trillion. So you thought 842 was a lot, you know, $1.5 is almost unimaginable 
as a number that we actually spend on the military. We, we, we try to imagine that all the time. You know, it, it, it's it's funny because, um, you know, the deficit got up to like two trillion or close to three trillion uh, during COVID. And we were talking on an right. earlier show and I said something to Tori about, you know, the deficit would, uh, you know, maybe only be around a trillion or something. And she said, Bob, listen to what you just said. You know, <laughs> the deficit is only a trillion. <laughs> it's somehow not real to, to most people, but, you know, it matters for a whole bunch of reasons and defense uh, plays its part. Uh, I mean, I remember, you know, back in the day, in the days of the 1980s, the Reagan administration liked to say, well, you know, defense is not, the deficit problem. It's those mandatories over there. It's that social security stuff and that Medicare stuff and the aid to families with dependent children, as was once known, SNAP program and so on. That's the problem, right? Because those are out of control because if you're eligible, you get them, right? So we have to spend what we have to spend there and they have grown. There is no question. Um, but defense does too. And, and it's really hard. You know, this is a hard mental exercise for some people. But when you think about it, where does the deficit come from? Um, how do you, what's your baseline for measuring that? How, where do you start? You know, the deficit should be X, but it's Y. Right. Well, what's the, sh what's the baseline for the should be? Should be, should be on the basis of what? Right. Somebody's conceptual idea of what we ought to be spending out in the universe? No. So the only, to me at least, the only reasonable way to figure that out is to start with um, the, the CBO baseline. Yeah. It's a technical term, but it basically says if this year we're proposing a budget and we simply took last year's budget and accounted for the additional cost, inflation and so on, um, then what would it be? You know, so and then the deficit flows. Well, we'll get this much in from the treasury taxes and we spend this much. And, you know, if you put those two numbers together, that's what the deficit should be. So the only reasonable way that I could ever figure out to at least say something intelligent about the contribution of various programs to the deficit is by looking at what the baseline was in the prior year or over a period of time and say, OK, when CBO, Congressional Budget Office, took a look at all the programs in the federal government, and then they projected them out just in terms of their projection for inflation. It's going to cost more next year because prices go up. It's going to cost more the next year because prices go up. And they project revenues, and they say, here's what the deficit would be starting with this baseline, starting from here. So I remember doing this in the 80s. I went back and I looked at what uh, what had changed, because then you can say, okay, something changed from baseline, they like to say. Something happened that said that baseline is no longer what the baseline should be, right? And some costs went up and some went down. And when I looked at this, and everybody wanted to blame mandatories in the Reagan years, it was all about Social Security, Medicare, and we're spending too much on these programs and welfare and all of that, right? Um what, what, what it turned out was that the largest single contributor to the change from baseline, he says, using slightly techno speak, mm -hmm. to the change from baseline, what changed was the Reagan tax cut of 1980, 81, the 81 tax cut. So that's took, took all the money that CBO and the government thought they were going to have by 1985 
and it cut it enormously. So the change from baseline was huge, mammoth. I mean, I won't, I won't do numbers because the numbers are not, people will lose the numbers. It was just a mammoth change. The second biggest change from baseline was the Reagan defense buildup. Mm-hmm. You know, it was $700 billion, that number I remember is $700 billion more than what it would have been had they not increased by $52 billion in 1981 and another $50 billion in 1982. And, you know, so does defense contribute to the deficit? Of course. Absolutely. You bet it does. It, it, can't, it can't but. Yeah. Right? So I, I got to get a question about like, Whose fault is this? Because I, I admit I'm coming at this from um, a military brat perspective. I was a, a daughter of a Marine. I am the daughter of a Marine. Um, and the way I and, and ha- my experience on Capitol Hill, the, the Pentagon will put forward a budget saying we need this X, Y right. and Z. And right. lawmakers in Congress will say, oh, no, you don't need just X, Y and Z. You also need, need you need more planes, you need more boats. By the way, those are made in my district. We need a couple of more aircraft carriers. Those are made in his district, you know. And so the Pentagon might put forward, you know, what some people consider a nominally sane budget. But then mm-hmm. once it gets through the the washing machine of 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 Congress, suddenly it, it looks like some sort of Frankenberger that, you know, they put together because it's not what. The military requested how much of the the bid up in Congress by by members of Congress who want to bring this money to their own district. How much of that is a problem in the defense budget? Is it a big problem or is it a little problem? It's a little problem until recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, until recently, uh, the congressional congr- Congress Congress tended to vary the. Let me come at it another way. When Congress looked at doing the things that you describe, and that's not. A military brat perspective with Hill experience, it's just realistic. <laughs> when when Congress says, oh, we want some of X and some of Y and some of Z, and, and we don't like A, B, and C that were in the budget request, Congress actually alters about under 5% of any defense budget that's ever set up there. They really change very little. What they do find is ways to suck money out of certain parts of the defense budget and spend it on other parts of the defense budget that satisfy them. Now, that's been true pretty much consistently since about since Graham Redmond Hollins in 1985. What changed, of course, is the budget control that constraints fell away, right? And what we have mm-hmm. seen, there's, there's two big things that happened. One, Congress is not responsible for, it's called the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. And they created a whole separate budget for to fund those things called the Overseas Contingencies Operations Account, right? Mm-hmm. And dumped a bunch of money in there that uh, was emergency, so it didn't count against all the constraints on spending. You know, it was great uh, free money, as it were. Uh, so that that was uh, one of the big changes. The other was those budgetary constraints came off, and the bidding war now that happens in the Congress. Well, let me just let me just cite you an example. A little more numerology, if you'll forgive me. Mm-hmm. Um, Baseline, okay. If the defense budget, in, 19, in as proposed for twenty twenty four, right? If that budget, if you look back, is eight hundred forty two billion dollars. What would it have been in the two previous budget requests? Or, you know, what what did, what did it look like? The what was in other words, what was the twenty twenty four number projected 
in those two earlier budgets? And how different is what Congress did to it? And the answer is $95 billion different. That's huge. Mm -hmm. That's quite unprecedented. That's 24 great. In, 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 the, in the budget request sent up in, 19, in 2022, it was supposed to be $747 billion by 2024. It's 842, so we're $95 billion higher than people thought it would be two years ago. Mm -hmm. It's just gone up, and that's the Congress. I mean, last year was $43 billion worth of congressional add to the defense budget. That is really unprecedented since 1981. That's when Reagan did 52. And I'm so betting that's two factors, right? That's inflation, you know, eight, nine percent inflation. So they want the defense budget to, you know, window dressing look like it's keeping up with inflation, but then also the money for Ukraine. Is that right? Before no, you I, answer that question, yeah. Gordon, if I was going to kill me, he says, I do this every time. Break, as they say. <laughs> we, we can refresh the question after the break, but it's a long tradition on facing the future that Tori asks a big question right when I have to take the break. So we're going to take our first break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori and I are talking to Dr. Gordon Adams. Uh, former uh, Associate Director of the Office of Management and Budget. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are de uh, discussing the defense budget and national security challenges with Dr. Gordon Adams, former Associate Director for National Security and International Affairs at the Office of Management and Budget. Tori, before we uh, took the break, you were asking a follow-up question. Well, I, I was just trying to potentially explain the big jump in, in defense spending last year, and I was blaming it on you know nearly double-digit inflation plus the, the war in Ukraine and all the emergency spending between humanitarian aid and, and the defense spending. And I was just wondering if that was true or not. Not. Okay. <laughs> We're just dispelling myths all over the place here. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a myth. And I'll tell you why. Um, because the Ukrainian, the budgets for Ukrainian support are, uh, have been, have been uh, appropriated as emergencies. So the numbers that I was working from do not include them. And the Pentagon numbers do not include them either. In fact, right. when, the, when they send up the current budget request, they basically said, you know, there will be a Ukraine supplemental. We'll get back to you. Right. So no, Ukraine is not included. Uh, and two, the, the other reason that it's wrong is because the Pentagon's very clear about their inflation assumption in the budget they just sent up. And it's 2.5%. Right now, we, you and I know out there in the commodity market economy, we're spending money, you know, it's sort of pouring out of our pockets because we're experiencing five, six, seven percent inflation. Right. Uh, and the and Pentagon, the Pentagon will too. They will. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's not how they build the budget. They built the budget on a projected inflation rate of two and a half percent. I know it's unrealistic. You know, it's unrealistic. But it's how the budget is built. And what it will mean is probably coming back for supplementals right. in order to accommodate the fact of inflation that hits the Pentagon like everywhere else. But no, it's not. It's a good question because people would naturally assume that. It's just not true in, in mm -hmm. budget planning terms. Uh, it's not it's not the way it's done. Mm -hmm. I wanted to I wanted to get your uh, your take on the president's budget proposal. Um, he sent it up in in March and it has uh, 
you know, it has an assumption, a request for defense spending, not just this coming fiscal year, but over the next 10 years. Uh, what, did, what did you think generally about the, uh, is it realistic, anomalous, whatever? Um, it, is, it is not only realistic, it's more than realistic. Um, it's probably more than realism demands. Uh, but they have piggybacked on the congressional ads and gone back up with a budget that would increase it slightly above what all of last year's addition from the Congress would have be done. And, and let me just uh, point out, Terry, for one of the things about the, the congressional ads, um, the, the uh, additional funding, which we said was not inflation and not Ukraine, what was therefore not for pricing. And in fact, of the total ad, more than half of it was additional pieces of equipment, period, the end. And, and as you mm -hmm. rightly pointed out, that's something that members of Congress love to add. In fact, I'm a cynic. Uh, you probably saw this on the Hill. There's a little game that the services play sometimes. And I saw this up real close and comfortable when I lived in the state of Maine, as I did for the last eight years. Uh, the uh, Bath Ironworks in Bath, Maine is the big local defense contractor in the state of Maine. There isn't another big one. Mm -hmm. right? It's just that. Right. And Bath Ironworks regularly gets into the budget for two additional Arleigh Burke class destroyers. Regularly, mm -hmm. you know, and the Navy sends it up that way. They want three. They want three. But there's a game here that's being played in which the Navy requests two, wink, wink, and Susan Collins and Angus King get to add a third destroyer, which the Navy, for some reason, is very happy to accept, mm -hmm. and Bath Ironworks is really happy to accept. So it's a kind of a, it's a piece of the politics of budgeting that people don't, I mean. I and, the two, and the two main senators get to say, I'm fighting for you. Look, I increased the defense budget for Bath Ironworks. Yeah. I added a ship. A Even though they're all colluding behind the scenes. You know, behind the scenes. And I've seen this time when I was at OMB, this was yeah. an annual joke. I mean, it was a regular exercise. I, I could tell you a story about the line item veto, but that probably needs to be offline. <laughs> that was so cynical. It was not to be believed. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they get things get added on in the Congress. This is this is definitely true. Until recently, they got added on by shuffling money around in the Appropriations Committee. Right. Basically, you'd say, oh, you know, we're building those destroyers in Bath, but we're spending the money on them slower than we thought. So there's a balance that we can probably this year shift around and put into the, you know, 20 C-130s that the state of Georgia just has to have, right? So they do, this is this is a very elaborate, sophisticated uh, set of negotiations and games involving borrowing from Peter to pay Paul and staying within some kind of a cap. Last year, it wasn't necessary. So they just threw it on. Everybody got what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Everybody got what they wanted, basically. You know, if you've got to send uh, equipment and supplies to uh, to Ukraine, uh, you know, you didn't budget for that. Uh, you have to go into somebody's pocket to find the money for that. That's why it's why comptrollers are not very popular people, right? Because that that the job of a comptroller, and frankly, it was my job at OMB, is picking pockets. That's basically <laughs> what you do all year round. Well, we got president now wants to do this, and we didn't appropriate that, so we got to find some money to do that. And you're constantly shuffling pockets of money around. 
to counterbalance what's happening on the ground during the year you know, in area area policy, but especially in defense, because, uh, you know, it's really hard to predict when war is going to break out and you have to do something about it. Um, you can't budget for surprise. About 40 percent of that money goes for what they call military personnel and operations and, and, and operations uh, and support, uh, operations and maintenance. Uh, and that's about 40% of the defense budget. That's all the stuff that pays the troops, pays the people in the field. You know, uh, it's all the money that pays for the 700,000 civilians who work for the Department of Defense, right? Uh, and uh, it buys their supplies, not their equipment. It buys their supplies, right? The, the uniforms, the boots, uh, you know, the food for the uh, uh, the kitchen, the, the mowing of the lawn, there, you know, whatever you're doing on base, uh, the, the transportation for getting people here and there, hither and yon. And we have this massive transport fleet like no other country in the world. We can deploy everywhere, anywhere, all the time. There's not another country in the world, including China, that can do that. You know, it's it's a mammoth capability. Uh, and they're really good at it. You know, war, wars are won by logisticians, we like to say, because yeah. you're out there on, on the front and you're on patrol and there's no bullets. Oops. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of planning for surprises, um, uh, the uh, the biggest one, I guess, is uh, the war in Ukraine. It strikes me then the, the, the back and forth of history, you know, they're always saying generals are preparing for the wrong war. And I wasn't really expecting another major ground war in Europe. I was talking to my sister last year when this broke out, and she said, I thought they told us in school that this wouldn't happen right. again <laughs> back when we were uh, kids. And so we were preparing, you know, we were caught unawares on a major terrorist attack on uh, 9-11, and then we've been preparing for anti-terrorism, uh, international terrorism, and we could have a sleeker, leaner military. And uh, now it turns out that we've got uh, a major ground war in Europe that we're supporting militarily, which is just grinding out a ton of ammunition and and yeah. equipment and stuff that the world is, frankly, not even capable of producing. Did you ever anticipate, did you think people anticipated that our next, we would be doing a major ground war in Europe? No, uh, I don't think anything anybody planned for it. I don't think the European countries had built forces that were prepared for it. Uh, I don't think they had trained and exercised forces that were prepared for it. Uh, we had it, the, 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 we have, we have a real problem in the, the U S military in my judgment, which is that we spent, we spent a lot of our time preparing and arming and buying and procuring and training around a major ground war in Europe, right? Um, when it when 9-11 hit, it was a big whoops because we hadn't trained or prepared significantly at all, though people had been warning about it and urging it and so on to deal with uh, the, the threat of uh, terrorist organizations internationally. We, we, had, we had no strategy. We were, we were improvising. Mm-hmm. Uh, after 9-11, right? And we rejuggled a certain part of our military to be able to do those things. Now, people can ask whether they should be done. I'm somewhat dubious myself if that we've bought more security by the way we've trained and operated with respect to terrorists, but, that, but that's what we did, right? Um, it didn't stop the Army in particular, 
from continuing to grind people through a training cycle that involved major infantry combat operations. It didn't stop them, right? Uh, it stopped the Marines to some degree, but it didn't stop the Army. And, and, what, and it didn't stop the politicians from doing what Tori and I were talking about earlier, that is to stay stuffing equipment into the budget because it's made in their districts. Um, all of that equipment is is appropriate for a major ground war in Europe, uh, you know. And so, uh, and, and people complained about it. People said, "Well, that's not the war of the future. What the heck are we doing <laughs> that for? We shouldn't be preparing to fight that war and buying all that equipment. We need two hundred billion dollar defense budget and the slickest bunch of interveners you've ever seen. But we don't. We're not going to do this." The army, particularly air force, to some degree, kept churning away doing it. <laughs> so when it, the surprise came, oddly enough, we were prepared. <laughs> that's, an interesting, that's an interesting way to be prepared is to not change. <laughs> by not changing. And then, then right. it comes around again and you're prepared. <laughs> and, and you just happen to be, you know, it's like a stopped clock is right two times a day. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of clocks, we're going to have to take our yes. second break. So at any, uh, any rate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll uh, so pick this break, up on not, the break. We did not anticipate it, but we had the supplies in stock that were designed for that war. And we have an industrial base that we're now cranking up to produce more of those stocks because the Ukrainian military is firing like there's no tomorrow. Uh, and we're doing that. Uh, well, more so, on that on the other yeah. side of the break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are discussing uh, the, the defense budget and national security challenges with Dr. Gordon Adams, a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute and former uh, uh, deputy uh, associate director for national security at the Office of Management and Budget. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are discussing the defense budget and national security challenges with Dr. Gordon Adams. He's Professor Emeritus of International Relations at the uh, American University School of International Service and former Associate Director for National Security at the Office of Management and Budget. Tori. So uh, we've been talking a little bit about Ukraine. Um, and I wanted to ask, you know, so far we've spent about, uh, I think, 131 billion between humanitarian and defense, uh, direct defense uh, support to Ukraine. Um, that's been, you know, emergency appropriations. Um, where does, where, where is that level of spending? Is it sustainable? Um, I know that we've got a couple of Republicans in the House that are starting to question how much we're sending there. Um, but right now it's very much a minority. Um, I'm not arguing that we should be sending spending less, um, but I do think, you know, we should be talking about what are our priorities as a nation and, you know, establishing a pecking order. Um, so I guess I was I was curious as to, you know, can we continue to spend at this? That's a pretty big burn rate, in my opinion. Um, can we continue to spend at this level? What, what do you what do you see the trajectory of this amount of spending? Um, what you know, what what are we doing about the budget for Ukraine? Well, we've done we're doing about the budget with Ukraine the way we uh, eventually formalized for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, that is to say, it's uh, icing on the cake. It goes mm -hmm. on top of what's called the base budget. Uh, and that's where Ukraine is. It, it, we've funded all of the Ukraine stuff uh, through supplemental budget requests. Um, 
you know, it is it is on top of the package. So to the degree that you think both parties right now in the Congress until this current year are prepared to spend as much as they feel it possible to spend with the breaks off on caps, um, they just add it to the pile. It just gets added to the, and it's funded by deficit financing and sale of treasury notes. And that's, you know, becomes part of the deficit. And then we have arguments over the debt ceiling and blah, blah, blah. But that's the way Congress behaves. And it is the way administrations behave too, uh, because stuff happens. You didn't anticipate it. You need to support it. As I said earlier, in in Afghanistan and Iraq, we eventually formalized it into an overseas contingencies operation account, but that was just for planning purposes. It really mm-hmm. didn't change what we were doing, uh, but it meant you to take the money and put it outside any constraints over the defense budget. And, and we'll do that, I think, with Ukraine uh, as well. There's a, a couple of things that's important to note, though, about the spending figures for Ukraine. We got about $20 billion dollars worth of what's called excess defense articles or uh, transfers of equipment. Um, That is an authority that the president has, usually delegated to the Secretary of State, to provide to somebody else on an emergency basis anything that's in the U.S. military inventory. Mm -hmm. And so when it wasn't possible, I mean, you, you know, if you wanted to buy new tanks for Ukraine here, wait three years because that's how long it takes you to get your tank. Built, if you yes. get tanks already parked somewhere and you can send them to Ukraine, then the, then the wait time is checking them out, making sure they operate, making sure the Ukrainians are trained, putting them on a boat and sending them off, right? Get them to Europe, ship them into Ukraine, which is what we've been doing for the last year. So we have uh, transfers of equipment that are ca- that are scored as an expenditure that actually are not. They're stuff we already bought. We already paid for it. We're giving it to Ukraine. We did that with the 155 millimeter shells. We're going to do it with the M1A1 tanks. Anything that we're doing, the HIMARS, all that stuff. Just going to ask about the HIMARS. Is is stuff we had, stuff we had in kit, and we'd already bought it, right? What the services get antsy about, for understandable reasoning, is, is you're, you know, you're taking my stockpile. What the hell? How am I going to fight a war if I have to fight a war? I'm going to take my stockpile, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly an issue for the services with respect to 155 military shells in the army, right? Because we burned through millions of those giving them to the Ukrainians, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the supplemental spending that you're seeing is refill, there's about $30 billion worth of refill. It's saying, okay, stocks are dwindling. I'm going to need more, you know, uh, missile sets. I'm going to need more artillery shells. I'm going to need more armored personnel carriers. I just sent 34 Bradleys over to Ukraine. You know, so we're back ordering, as it were, uh, from what we have shipped out the front door. What comes next in terms of lessons around the world? I mean, uh, are we headed towards a major confrontation with China? over Taiwan. And is this some, are there lessons to be learned for that from what's going on in Ukraine? China is the central planning orientation in the Pentagon. Ukraine's a sideshow. You got to do it, but it's a sideshow. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not orienting our force planning right now around the Ukrainian scenario as much as we're orienting it around the China scenario. And this budget and it, it's kind of unusual to have a budget that actually somehow mimics strategy. It's not 
often not structured around that thing called the national security strategy or the national defense strategy. Yeah. You know, that's somehow written offline, off books, and, and maybe it has an impact. What seems to be true, uh, late Trump and surely true in early Biden, is that the China, the Pentagon is responding to their piece of what they see as the Chinese issue. You know, and it's in what they're buying, which is real proof, right? They put money behind it. Right. Money is policy. So we're investing at a frantic rate on things like hypersonics, right? Because mm -hmm. the Chinese and the Russians are, but also because it's a nifty technology if you want to deliver a warhead faster and with less visibility than anything we currently have in inventory, right? So they're putting $11 billion into hypersonics, and they'll tell you the Chinese are way ahead of us at this game, balderdash. We've been doing this for 20 years. We got all the R&D base we need to do it. We're producing the first production items in 2024. So it's, you know, it's, it's not true that we're outnumbered and outgunned here. We're putting a lot of money into hypersonics, artificial mm -hmm. intelligence, cyber capabilities. The, the National Security Administration budget has skyrocketed in the last 10 years. Um, we're doing all of the forward planning. There's a, there's, a, there's a billion and a half dollars in this budget for security of Guam. I mean, they're going to think they died and went to heaven on Guam <laughs> or not because there'd be so many American soldiers around. They can't, the, the, the Guam people can't stand it. But either way, a billion and a half to upgrade security in Guam is unprecedented, right? Aside from everything everybody's buying, there's a $9 billion dedicated fund for the Indo-Pacific region for all kinds of purposes, right? We're deploying forces forward. We're upgrading. Is this budget taking the Chinese issue seriously? Yes, maybe even too much. Uh, sometimes I think it's taking it more seriously than other people. I like Jake Sullivan's talk last week because um, it was mostly on trade and economics, and that's really the heart of the matter here. Um, so, yeah, are the Chinese arming up? Surprise. Yes, <laughs> the Chinese are arming up. There's no question. For the last 10 years or so, they've been increasing their defense budget about 10% per year. That's way more than we have been, though they're starting from a lower base. so. Right. They're now around 320 billion and we're still around 842. That's a very gross comparison. Doesn't tell you about capabilities. So what interests me is okay, are we are we training and buying the kit and doing the things that seem appropriate? Should we end up in some kind of confrontation with the Chinese over Taiwan or anything else? Uh, and the I think on the whole, the answer is yes. Um, the Navy is especially happy, <laughs> budgetary terms because the Navy has the big forward position in the Western Pacific. So it's about the ships, uh, you know, it's about the forward basing, uh, it's about the submarines, um, you know, the, the stuff the Navy does, and I'm a big fan of the Navy, hate to say it was true. Um, they're doing, the Navy has always done pretty good matching of their capabilities that they're buying and the, the objectives that they want to achieve. Uh, and they seem to be doing that now with respect to the Asia Pacific theater uh, in a coherent way. Uh, um, you know, it's it's interesting. It's you know, they've always done great planning. This is a particularly good exercise uh, for the Navy. The, the Marine Corps is doing a remarkable job of turning from that CT combat mission into more traditional Marine Corps missions, but also lighter footprints and things that they, they do so well. 
because they're they're a light capability and they're a light planning capability. I always enjoyed working with the Marine Corps planners when I was at OMB because it was just straight, clean, you know, OBS stuff. Adjust, adapt, but overcome. Yeah. Uh, so that was so. Yes, I think on the whole. Now, what's interesting about that, and it's reflected in this budget, is you'd think, well, if the Chinese were coming, we've got to start adding people to the military. Whew, we got to bulk up here. No, the United States has always bought uh, superiority in technology to compensate for inferiority in personnel. I mean, in numbers, we're always going to be smaller, and right. we make up in technology what we lack in numbers. And we've always done that. And this budget is very clear about it. This budget says, you will note, we're not adding to personnel. The Navy, the Army goes down about 2,000. I think the Navy Air Force up about 6,000. That's a nothing burger. It's a very tiny number, right? Uh, so they have taken attrition over the past two, three decades. They've taken a lot of attrition in forces and by their right way out with superior technology, with advanced technology. That's 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 the trade-off. So we've not added troops. And if you think about it, it makes sense. I, I defy any one of the three of us to argue that the first thing we're going to do if there's conflict over Taiwan is invade mainland China. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Didn't we try that way back in the early 1950s and paid for it big time because the Chinese, now they can turn out people. Yeah. <laughs> they, they got over a billion of them. They can turn out all kinds of people. Gordon, I'm not uh, I'm not necessarily hopeful that uh, that the defense budget is going to be coming down as it uh, did. Certainly uh, it, when you were at uh, OMB and not that you were personally responsible, <laughs> <laughs> there were some factors like the end of the Cold War at that time. But, but, he, says, but he says shamelessly that he did play a role in it. Meaning. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, no, take credit for it. Um, but, I, you know, we we think about the <clears throat> long term debt and, and, and deficit here. And uh, every part of the budget is on the table as far as we're concerned. Uh, but we can't win the Cold War twice. So bringing the defense budget down from about 6% of GDP to 3% of GDP, as we did in those years, we're at about 3% of GDP now. So we can't bring it down to zero. Um, no, no. And 3% of GDP, I've always been not very, I didn't find the GDP number very useful because it tells you only about the tax on the economy. It doesn't tell you whether you're buying the capability you need. There's not a magic number there. It's just, you know, it's, yeah, it's a, a, it's a concept. Kind of a mathematical curiosity, but yeah. uh, the most effective, aside from getting the country out of a war, the most effective tool for keeping some, I call it discipline in the defense budget, is an external budget-wide set of caps. Mm. History has shown us now from 1985 to 2023, that's plenty of years and three different proofs of principle, right? Three different acts congressionally, that those are with, that the, and, and this is my view of the Pentagon, they're wonderful planners. They are some of the best strategic planners in the U.S. government, way better than anybody else, you know, because if they fail, it's like real obvious. They function best as planners under budgetary constraints. It sounds illogical. The proof of principle for me was the was the uh, Bush uh, one administration, right, eighty nine to ninety three. Uh, the Bush one administration cut the defense budget fifty percent in real dollars. 
cut the size of the force from 2.2 million people to 1.4 million people, cut the research and development budget 40%. The same force I, I watched because I was at OMB, I watched the services and the Pentagon leadership adapt and plan to that fiscal reality and produce the force that took down Saddam Hussein, which I did not agree with, but it was done. It took down his capability in days. Uh, it was just an immensely capable of force, and that's because they managed the transition down really well. They're good planners. But budget discipline, for me, is a planning tool for the Pentagon. Well, we're going to leave it there on that enticingly hopeful note. I want to thank our guest for this week, Dr. Gordon Adams, a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at American University's School of International Service, and former Associate Director for National Security at the Office of Management and Budget. I thank Tori for joining me, too, on this discussion of the defense budget and national security challenges. This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 